Ephesians chapter 6, would you look at verse number 10, please? I'm going to read from verse 10 down to verse number 17. The Bible says, finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand. Stand therefore, having your loins girt about with truth, and having on the breastplate of righteousness, and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith ye shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. And notice verse number 17, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Shall we pray together, please? Father, I'd ask that you'd come and meet with us here today. We do not have any desire to have a simple meeting and just to talk about things and then go home. We long for you to be present and to work, to touch lives, and that there would be decisions that would be made. Oh, may we listen and heed the word of God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. What a very powerful and encouraging scripture we find in the text that I just read, Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 17. It's wonderful to know that God has not left you alone to do battle, the spiritual warfare. In fact, he's armed you with the heavenly resources that will aid you in your daily walk with him. This passage opens up a number of wonderful things that we can know about the battle that we're in. He tells us about our enemy. That's Satan, the devil, and all of his hosts that are spoken about in verse number 12. He tells us about the energy that we're to do the battle in. I didn't read that verse, but in verse number 18, he says, praying with all prayer here and all supplication in the spirit. So my friend, I want to tell you something. You need to be a praying person. But notice now the equipment that we're to utilize in this battle with the evil one, the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, our feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace, that shield of faith, the helmet of salvation. And then notice the end of verse 17, what he lists at the very end. He says here that we're to take this sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Now, Paul, writing this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, refers to this piece of armor as the sword of the Spirit. And I want you to realize that this is the very Word of God because God tells us what this sword is. It is the Word of God. I love this piece of armor that we have because it's not just some simple piece that we take hold of, but he recognizes it is the sword of the Spirit. 
Who is the Holy Spirit? He's a part of the Trinity, a part of the Godhead. He's the one that has been used to actually move upon the human writers to pen the very Word of God. And I'm here to tell you, when you come to this piece of equipment, like all the others, but yet this one we're recognizing today, you're not just using any old book. This is the inspired Word of God. This is not just some writings of men only. Because if it were just the writings of men and we were just babbling a few things that have been spoken by various people, I'd tell you, let's go ahead and move out of this building, cut the air conditioning off, and you go home and watch the news because those are the babblings of men. But I'm here to tell you, we have an inspired and an errant word of God that this book is without error. It is the very word of God, and we have something to use in the warfare that we're in. All of us as believers are in this warfare. But he mentions here, it's a sword. Now, if you were to live in these days, you would see Roman soldiers regularly moving about you, and you would see the type of swords that they would have. Many of the swords that soldiers would have would be a four-foot sword that had to be used with both hands. But the sword that is spoken about here in Ephesians 6.17 is a shorter sword. Anywhere from 6 to 18 inches, this particular sword is referred to. It is a dagger-like sword that can be applied more directly and with deadly results. It was the principal weapon that was used in hand-to-hand combat. And the user of this sword had to develop some skill with it, and if he did not, he would not survive. It is a weapon that required precision, in both its defensive and offensive uses. And I want you to notice that this sword of the Spirit is referenced here as the Word of God. What you and I need for doing battle with the enemy is the very Word of God. But we're not talking about the Word of God in general. You see, when I look at this word, Word, in the Bible there are a few different words that are used for the Word of God. And it's very important for us to get a true understanding of what he is talking about in this passage. First of all, he's not using the very word that refers to the writings of Scripture. That's the Greek word graphe. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. He's not referring to just Scripture There's another word that is used for the Bible, and that is the word logos. It refers to the very word of God that it was given. For instance, the word of God, Hebrews 4.12 said, is quick and powerful. But that's not what he's talking about. He's not talking about what is written down. He's not talking about the word of God just in general, our overall Bible that we have. But the word rhema is the word that is used in Ephesians 6.17. And it is a specific word that is used. You see, I fear for far too many Christians that, that there are many who will come into church, hear the word of God, sit there, look at their watch, look back at the clock, just kind of pass time, get out, 
and they find themselves defeated in the first round of the week because they don't have a specific word of God. They say, well, I'm a born-again Christian. I've got the Bible. Look, all of us have the Bible today. All of us, whether it's on your phone or your laptop or, or you're holding the very Word of God, we all have the Word of God. But I want to ask you a question. Do you know the specifics of the Word of God? When the evil one comes your way and tempts you, when the evil one comes to try to do, uh, engage you in battle, do you have a specific word of God that you can give back and be able to hold up and say, this is my sword. I'm using this with precision to do battle with the enemy. And this morning, I want to share with you some areas that Satan may attack you and where you can use that specific Word of God, the sword of the Spirit, to defeat the enemy. Number one, I want to share this with you. In doing battle, you and I need a word for the hour of temptation. A word for the hour of temptation. Now, like it or not, In reading this passage, this speaks about engaging the enemy in battle. And before the real battle begins, there are temptations that are given by the evil one. You know, we can read about a lot of temptations in the Bible, and from those we can glean a lot of help and a lot of knowledge. But I don't believe there's any two temptations where we learn more and gain more information than the very first temptation in the book of Genesis and one of the first temptations given in the New Testament, the book of Matthew. Now, I'm not going to reference the Genesis account a whole lot, but I do want you to turn, if you would, hold your place here and go back to the book of Matthew, chapter number 4. The first book of the New Testament, Matthew, chapter number 4. And in Matthew chapter 4, we come to a portion of Scripture which has to do with the temptation of Jesus Christ. And while you're turning there, let me make a few comments about this temptation of the Lord Jesus Christ. First of all, can I say that it is not a sin to be tempted? It's not a sin to be tempted. If it were, then we'd have a problem with Jesus because Jesus was tempted. It is a sin to give in to temptation, but it's not a sin to be tempted. Second of all, Jesus not only passed this recorded temptation, but every other temptation that came his way. That's why Jesus was able to die on that cross as the perfect substitute for your sin because he passed every temptation that came his way And he never gave in once and was the pure, spotless, blemished, unblemished Son of God. Now, to the specifics of this temptation, notice if you understand your Bibles well, Jesus was tempted in three different ways. And it's very interesting when we think about the temptation of Jesus Christ. Before I get into the specifics of each of the three temptations, I want to call your attention to another passage, and I'll just cite it for you. It's in 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 to 17. The Bible tells us as Christians to not love the world, neither the things that are in the world. And then he describes what is in the world. He says, for all that is in the world, 
the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. Do you realize today that every time Satan comes to attack you, he may have a uniquely crafted temptation, but every one of the temptations falls under one of these three categories. It's either a temptation that is a lust of the flesh. What is that? That's the desire to enjoy things. It might be the lust of the eyes. That's the desire to have things. Or it might be the pride of life, the desire to be somebody. Now think with me for a moment of the temptation of Jesus Christ. What was the first temptation that Jesus was given here by Satan? It was to turn the stones into bread. How did, how did Satan come? Satan came to Jesus in this fashion. Look, you're hungry. You've been fasting for 40 days, 40 nights. And I'm going to go ahead and tempt you to, you can, to turn this stone into bread. Now, Jesus could have done that. But that was a desire to enjoy something. Notice here, the second temptation in verses 5 through 6, Jesus was taken to the top of the temple and told to throw himself down and then call out the angels to catch him. You know what that was? The pride of life. Basically, Satan's appealing to Jesus, look, look, you're, you're somebody, and why don't you just prove it by jumping off this building, and you could call the angels, and they'll catch you before you hit the ground. Third temptation, here it is. Satan takes Jesus up to a mountain, and imagine the audacity of Satan to say, look, look all around you. Look at everything you can see from this mountaintop, and I'll give you all of this. Now, hold on a second. He's talking to the very creator of it all. He's talking to the one who made it. He's talking to the one who owns it all. But he says, if you bow down and worship me, I'll give you all of this. Now, I, I want to note some things about how Jesus answers Satan. Because it is very important for you and I, when we are tempted... And I guarantee this week, you'll have temptations come your way. Last week, you had temptations. If you're a believer, Satan is constantly trying to bombard you in getting away from God's way to do things your way. And so notice here what Jesus does here. Every time Jesus answers, look at verse number four, these three words. It is written. Look at verse number 7. It is written. And then notice verse number 10. It is written. What do you mean it is written? What is written? The very Word of God. Now, you know what Jesus does here? Jesus could have, in his own power, just crushed Satan. He could have defeated him right there by something he said that was ingenious. He could have done some miracle to avoid the temptation. But do you know what Jesus was doing? Jesus was setting an example for all of us for all of time on earth. And that is that every time you face a temptation, you know what you need to come back to? The Word of God. Now, here's our problem. We sit in church. We hear the Word of God. 
somebody asked us about 3 o'clock, what did the preacher preach on this morning? You know, I, I don't remember. I can't, I can't think about that. We sit down and read our Bible in the morning once in a while, and we'll go through and we'll read things. And then by the time 9 or 10 o'clock in the morning pops around, we start thinking back to our Bible readings. I can't remember what I read. And what happens is we get into the midst of a temptation that Satan throws our way and we find ourselves falling down and giving into that temptation because we don't know the Word of God specifically. Notice Jesus gave an answer every time. In fact, I like to look at it this way. Every time Jesus answered Satan, he answered from the book of Deuteronomy. I'd almost bet you that while Jesus is 40 days fasting and going through all that, he's reading through the book of Deuteronomy. And he's memorizing it. He's meditating upon it. And he's going through it. So that way, Satan comes and says, look, if you're the son of God, turn these stones into bread. Now, I'll be honest with you. If you fasted for any period of time, even a pew bench looks good to eat. He could have turned that stone into bread, but what would he have been doing? He would have been falling ahead and following Satan as opposed to following God's will. If he gave into the second temptation again, he would have been following Satan and circumventing what God had for him again with the third temptation. And I'm here to remind you of something that you need the word of God. You must know it and have some verses in your mind. So that way, when you come into temptation, you're not fooled by the lies of the devil. You know how he got Adam and Eve? Now, this was a perfect temptation scenario because the very Son of God answered with the Word of God and did not succumb. But we go back to the book of Genesis. Guess what? how Eve and Adam fell? They began to fall into the wording of Satan. Satan came in and threw some disinformation. He kind of altered the Word of God. He cast some doubt on the Word of God. And I'm here to remind you of something right now. Jesus said these words in John 8, 44. He said to these religious leaders, Ye are of your father the devil. He was a liar and he was a murderer. And he is the father of the lie. He's the father of it. In fact, it talks about now. When we look at that verse in John 8, 44, he's the father of it. What is he the father of? He's the father of the one major lie. What is that? That you can get ahead better in this life on your own than following God's will. And my friend, I want to tell you, you cannot without God's help and God's intervention and God's will accomplished in your life, do anything for God because Satan is constantly trying to pull you away. So how important it is to know the very Word of God. Secondly, I want you to notice that in this battle that we have, that you and I need a word for the moments of emotional struggle. Now, we're all emotional creatures. Some of us are more so than others, but we all have an emotional side. What is an emotion? It's an internal reaction or an internal movement to the things that are happening in our lives. It could be things that are happening inside, things that are happening outside of us. 
And I want you to know that there's nothing wrong with that because God is an emotional being, if you will, and he created us in his likeness. You see, God shows emotions like joy. God shows emotions like sorrow. But our problem is that our emotions are tainted with sin. And as we travel through this life and we find the struggles, the trials, and and we're pulled down by these emotions and they tend to consume us. And there's some emotional emotions that sadly lead many Christians into a dark place where they do not find victory with Jesus Christ. And I want to deal with one of those here today that I believe might help you if you can get a word from God. It has to do with the area of worry or anxiety. You know, I was told one time a man went to a doctor complaining about a number of pains that he had. And after examining him, the doctor said, you know, I can't find anything organically wrong with you. But sometimes physical problems are the result of worry or stress. And maybe you could find a counselor and tell him all your troubles. He might be able to advise you and make you feel better. In fact, the doctor went on. He said, last week I had a fellow who's complaining of pain similar to yours, and I couldn't find anything wrong with him. But after talking a while, he told me that he was worried sick about a $5,000 debt that he owed and he couldn't pay. Well, we talked about it. I was able to help him. Well, that man sitting there, the patient was very intrigued. He said, how did you help him? Oh, he says, I told him that life was too short to worry about a piece of paper that said you owed $5,000. I suggested he tear the paper up and throw it away. Stop worrying about all that debt and just get on with life. So the guy did. He feels great. The patient looked at him. He said, yeah, he says, I know. I'm the one he owes five grand to. You know, I don't care whether you're on the one side or the other side. All of us deal with this area of worry. It has been said that one of the greatest struggles amongst people, and that includes born-again Christians, as well as, sadly, today, children, one of the greatest struggles is that of worry and anxiety. According to the Anxiety and Depression Association of America. You probably didn't know there was such a thing. Here's what they say. Anxiety disorders are the most common mental illness in the United States, affecting 40 million adults in the United States ages 18 and older. Or, here's what it is, almost one in every five adults are affected by anxiety disorders. You know, it's sad today, we're hearing more and more about children and teenagers who say that they're facing anxiety. In fact, the statistics come out that about 8% of that category believe they have anxiety order disorders. Well, what is worry and what is anxiety? Worry and anxiety is this, it's an uneasiness of the mind. It's a feeling anxious about something or to fret about something. In fact, this comes, the word worry or anxiety comes from an old English word that means to strangle. When you look at our King James Bible, you'll find uh, this word that is used. In fact, we're going to look at it in a moment. It's the word take no thought. Or in the book of Philippians, we're going to look at the word don't be anxious here. It's very interesting. When you look at the Greek word, it literally means to be pulled in two different directions to divide the mind, to actually fall to pieces. 
It's very Somebody said one day, worry never robs tomorrow of its sorrow. It only saps today of its joys. Well, what does the Bible say about worry? You're there in Matthew. Would you turn over two chapters to chapter number 6? Look at Matthew chapter 6, if you would. And let me look at verse number 25. Matthew 6 and verse number 25. Therefore, I say unto you, take no thought for your life, what ye shall eat or what ye shall drink, nor yet for your body what ye shall put on. Is not the life more than meat and the body than raiment? Then he begins to give some examples of the creatures that he takes care of and how God oversees everything. Look down at verse number 34. Take therefore no thought for the morrow, for the morrow shall take thought of for the things of itself. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. Now here's what's interesting about this passage of Scripture. When I read in verse 25, he said, therefore, that means that this portion of Scripture is in a greater body of Scripture. Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is a portion of Scripture known as the Sermon on the Mount. What is the Sermon on the Mount? If I could go ahead and describe the Sermon on the Mount this way, it is like this. It is Jesus telling us all about the kingdom that he is establishing versus the world and its system that we're living in today. You know what our problem is? Why we get so worried is we're not living in the spiritual kingdom that God has, has given to us. We're constantly worried about this kingdom. He tells us, don't worry about the food and the clothing and all that. Does not God take care of the birds? Does not God know the number of the hairs on your heads? God knows all that. But worry is when we're pulled apart because we're living here, we want to be over there, and we're finding ourselves falling to pieces. Well, six times in this passage, he says here, take no thought. Take no thought. Look at verse number 25. He says here, take no thought. Verse 27, verse 28, verse 31, and then twice in the last verse of the chapter. So notice this. Now, it's very easy for me to tell you, hey, Calvary Baptist members, take no thought. You say, yeah, that's easier said than done. Well, let's go ahead and go to another passage of Scripture. Again, what are we doing? We're taking a word that can be used when worry comes along. Go to the book of Philippians, if you would. You were holding your place, I believe, in Ephesians. So flip over one book, the book of Philippians, chapter number four. Philippians chapter 4, look at verse number 4. He says, Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. Let your moderation be known unto all men. The Lord is at hand. Be careful for nothing. Now that's that phrase here, don't worry. Don't get uptight. Don't get anxious. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Now, I love this passage of Scripture because he tells us to rejoice. Now, if you're sitting here today and last week was a breeze, you're probably happy-go-lucky. You're like, man, I'm on cloud nine. 
no problems in my life, nothing's going on. So you're able to say, I can rejoice in God. But maybe you're here today and you're caught between those two worlds. There's some sickness in your family. There's some troubles that are going on in your life. There are some things that are, some pressures that are mounting upon you, and you're getting anxious about these things. Well, the Bible says, be anxious for nothing. But I love, he gives a prescription here, and this is what we need. Because as you go through this emotion of anxiety and worry, what we need is not to say, well, I'm just going to have to uh, 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 fight through this whole thing. No, you need a word, the sword of the Spirit for this specific moment. And what is he saying? Be anxious for nothing, but the transition here, in everything by, notice these three things, prayer, supplication, thanksgiving. You know what you need to do? The Bible says that when you face times where you're getting anxious and you're wanting to, you're seeing your mind become divided between uh, the, the spiritual world and the physical world that you live in and all the things that are happening and swirling in your life, here's what you got to do. You got to come to God in prayer. This is the word that means an adoration. It is the opportunity to worship God. Hey, I want to tell you something. Despite what's going on in your life, God truly is a good God. And when you come to him and you acknowledge, God, I don't know why this is going on in my life. I don't know why I'm struggling here. But you truly are a good God. When you worship God, I'm going to tell you, it's going to change your perspective. But then he says you come with supplication. That is, you bring the requests that are on your heart. These are the things that you say, all right, Lord, I've got this debt I need to pay. I have this problem. I I don't know how to overcome this. We just learned that there's a sickness in our family, and we don't know how to go through this thing. Help us, Lord. But then notice he adds thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. Thanking the Lord. Saying, Lord, I thank you for how good you are. Thank you for allowing me to go through this. Thank you for what you're going to teach me in this situation. So I want to tell you that the first thing that you and I need to do is come to God in prayer. But I want you to notice something else that we ought to do when worry begins to take hold of our heart. And that is what verse number 8 says. Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true... Whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, are lovely, are of good report, if there be any virtue and there be any praise, read the last four words with me. Think on these things. You know what our problem is? We dwell on the negative. I've counseled people who keep coming back. Well, preacher, you don't understand what I'm going through. You don't understand what's happening. And they keep rehearsing it and rehearsing it and rehearsing it. Do you know that doesn't make you feel any better? Just going over it and saying it actually makes it worse. And just the other day, I I, I was counseling somebody, and I said, I want you to go back, quit focusing on the problems, and I want you to go back and write out 10 things that God has done good in your life. You know what? That helped. Because what you and I need is to think on the things that God has for us, the true things, the honest things, the things that are of good report. 
And I'm telling you, when you get your thinking in the right direction, God will begin to help you. Well, let me look at one last area that we wrestle with in this life, and that is a word for the times of doubt. A word in the time of temptation, the hour of temptation, a word in the moments of emotional struggle, but then a word for the times of doubt. And I want you to take your Bibles. One last passage. I'm I'm just kind of taking you around today. It's my way of keeping you awake this morning. But 1 John chapter 5. If you would turn there, please. 1 John chapter 5. And when I talk about doubt, I'm talking about a specific doubt that you may have in your life. One of the greatest struggles that I find that many Christians have is in the area of assurance of salvation. And you know, the devil may not be able to keep a person from heaven, but he sure can do all he wants to do to keep heaven out of your heart. And a man or woman who struggles with assurance of salvation will find themselves limited in their use for the kingdom of heaven. Now, how can I know that I'm saved? Look at 1 John chapter 5, verse 11. The Bible says, and this is the record. Now, this, this is your word for today. If you're here today and you're struggling with, boy, I don't know if I'm saved or not. I don't know whether I really have it or not. This is the word for you today. Look at this. This is the record that God hath given to us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He that hath the Son hath life. He that hath not the Son of God hath not life. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that ye have eternal life, and that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. Now look specifically at verse number 13 that I just read. He says, these things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may, what's the next word? Say it louder. One more time. No. 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 It's an experiential word. You see, far too many people just lock things up in their mind. They go, oh, yeah, you know, I, I prayed this little prayer. But all of a sudden, they get their world rocked. And they wonder if they really have that salvation. But Jesus made the promise that those who believe in Jesus Christ can know that they're saved. Now, I'm here to tell you today that there's only two groups of people, and I want you to know that if you're lost today, you can be saved today. If you're saved today, you can know that you're saved. The great preacher of yesteryear, Adrian Rogers, once put it this way, many Christians don't know they're saved. They go around with their shoulders all bent over, drooping, wondering, and worrying. They remind me of question marks with heads bent over rather than exclamation points standing straight and tall and saying, I know whom I have believed. Rather than being shouting Christians, they're doubting Christians. Rather than having a no-so salvation, they have a hope-so salvation. But would you look through this passage for me and let's notice the word that is given to us that you and I can take to know that we're saved. Look at verses 2 to 3. I didn't read these, but notice, I think there's a principle of a changed life, 
By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep His commandments. And he talks further about keeping those commandments in the next verse. Can I say to you today, would you look right up here? If you're saved, there's something that has transpired in your life, and you know it. Your life's different. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, If any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. If people have to drag you to church, if people have to go ahead and uh, get you away from fighting with other believers and, and you don't have any care or concern for other people, then you better check what you really have inside. Because a person who knows Christ, their life has changed and they know it. But I want you to notice verses 5 to 6, there's the principle of who did the saving. The Bible says in verse 5, Who is he that overcometh the world? But he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God. This is he that came by water and blood, even Jesus Christ, not by water only, but by water and blood. And it is a spirit that beareth witness because the spirit is truth. Can I say to you today that the way that you know that you're saved is you know you didn't do it. You trusted in Jesus who did it. You know, I've, I, I've, I've done a lot of soul winning and witnessing over the years, and I've asked a lot of people about the matter of salvation, and here's a lot of what I get. Well, I, I've always been saved. Or I, I've prayed a prayer for the Lord to protect me, and I, I prayed. I want to tell you something. There's a lot of general prayers that people pray. There's a lot of general faith that we have and a lot of things that maybe God can do for us, but there is a difference between general faith and saving faith. And my friend, you don't save yourself. It's Jesus who saved you. And I'll tell you what, if you're trusting in how I prayed the prayer, what I did, all that type of stuff, then I'm going to tell you something. You're going to find yourself all mixed up because you're relying on you. I'm here to say to you, you must rely fully on Jesus Christ. But here's another principle of the verses I read, verses 11 through 12, the principle of what God's Word says. Would you look at verse 12? Now, if you're here today and I've led you to Christ, most likely I've read this verse to you, or it's parallel, John chapter 3, verse 36. Would you look here? There's two groups of people. He that believeth on the Son, would you say the next words, has what? Life. He that believeth not the Son has not life. Now, think about this. If you're saved today, what is the promise of God that you have? Life. Now, it's not a preacher that promises life. It's not a church that promises it. It's God. And what is that life given to you for? Because you came and you exercised your faith in what Jesus Christ did for you. And God says, if you believe, you have eternal life. You know what's sad about far too many people? They're basing their salvation experience not on factual information, but on feelings. Now, we're going to find some truth out for me. How many of you woken up on a particular Sunday morning and not wanted to go to church? Come on, be truthful now. It's okay. We got a camera taking notes here. I'm just. <laughs> oh, but truthfully, 
There's been times we've woken up and there's something we're supposed to do, but we don't want to do it because our feelings are not quite there. Sometimes we're excited, sometimes we're down. Our feelings carry us here, our feelings carry us there. My friend, God never promised you salvation based on how you feel. God bases salvation on his eternal word. This is the record. If you believe in Jesus, you have present possession. You have eternal life. Now, what am I trying to do this morning? I'm trying to show you what you have in your hands. Far too many of us use this more like a club. We get into trouble and we pull out the Bible, but we don't know where to go. We're like, well, I got the Bible, but it doesn't do you any good because you've not taken it in personally and don't know it practically, specifically. You and I are given this Bible, but so we may know it. And I want to give you just some practical things, and I'm done here today, and I want to put these up on the screen. Tips for making the Word of God effective in your life. Can I give you four simple things? Number one, read your Bible daily. I say, Pastor, I, I, I failed it. I've tried that. I started on Monday, and I read, and I was good on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday. I failed, and, and I just kind of gave up. Start again. You failed Wednesday, start Thursday. You say, well, I did it for three days and then I failed. It's okay. Start again. All of us, if we're ever going to be successful, recognize that there will be failures along the way. But it's not the failures that mark you. It is the determination in Jesus Christ to go through. Read your Bible daily. Number two, I want you to notice this. Find ways to apply the Word of God. Now, don't just read the Bible and go, oh, that was good, and walk away, and then you forget completely what you read. Before you leave you're the Word of God, before you close this book, write something down that you can take for your life. Maybe you read a scripture about anger, and you say, you know, boy, I got angry at my wife the other day. I got angry at this person, and, and I need to do better. And you write down how you can do better when it comes to the area of anger. Maybe it has to do with lust. Maybe it has to do with uh, 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 bitterness. I don't know what it is, but something grips you. Write down something that you can take and apply to your life. Number three, would you notice this? Memorize and meditate on Scripture. Now, I put two of these words together because God never said he'd bless a memorizer. He would bless a meditator. But one of the ways you get to meditate upon Scripture is when you memorize Scripture. Now, I'm telling you, a lost art today is memorizing the Word of God. We have far too many people who have a steady diet on television, reading all sorts of other things, playing video games and all sorts of stuff, but they don't take the Word of God internally and digest it. Memorize it and begin to meditate on it. When you face that temptation, you'll be glad you memorized some Scripture. When you face some trials in your life and you begin to get anxious about those things, you'll be glad you've taken that Scripture in. But number four, and this summarizes all of it, get accountable to somebody for all the above I just gave you. You know, it's one thing for you to go ahead and say, all right, I'm going to read my Bible. I'm going to start applying it. 
And then I'm going to go ahead and memorize and meditate. But then you have a failure in your life. You know what a great thing is for every believer is accountability. Find someone in this church family that can help hold you accountable and say, hey, brother, did you read your word today? Hey, brother, what did you get out of your scripture reading today? And hold one another accountable. I'm telling you, the success of the Christian life is determined in a great way by how you and I can hold each other accountable to these things. And I want to encourage you to get a word for the areas that you're struggling with. Maybe I dealt with it today, maybe I didn't. But find something that can truly help you. Let's pray together. Lord in heaven, we thank you for this particular word of God and how you've challenged us to have a specific word in the time of need. Jesus knew what to give to Satan when he was tempted. We're given specific words about dealing with worry and other, other emotional struggles we go through. We're given a word of God when it comes to the doubts and maybe the lack of assurance of salvation that we may have. And Lord, whatever it is that we're struggling with, I pray that we would have a specific word of God.